AgriPulse Deep Dive is brought to you by America's crop insurance industry. The U.S. crop insurance program protects more than 540 million acres of farmland. It remains the cornerstone of the farm safety net and is the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. There's a reason I didn't become a farmer. I grew up doing the work. I honestly didn't hate it. When the opportunity presents itself, I still like to go home and drive a tractor. But honestly, I didn't think Mother Nature was going to be a good business partner. As a reporter, if I write bad articles or misquote a source, that's on me. I would lose my income because of my own errors. But what happens when a farmer does everything right and it doesn't rain? That's lost income through no fault of their own. I couldn't work with that. The thing is, that's not the end of the story for that farmer. They still have one of the tenets of American farm policy in their corner. It's called crop insurance, and it's emerged as an essential tool for producers and policymakers alike. But the program's history isn't a straight line to the policies on the books today. Let's travel down the winding road toward today's disaster protection for producers in the third episode of our deep dive on farm and food policy drivers. Risky Business. Crop insurance is now an integral part of the nation's farm policy infrastructure and the business model of many of the country's producers. But the path toward the risk management tool as it is today was a long, winding one with several twists, turns, and hailstones along the way. The essence of crop insurance is similar to many other forms of coverage like health or car insurance. Policyholders are protected against certain things in exchange for the payment of a premium. But Tara Smith, who lobbies for the Crop Insurance and Reinsurance Bureau at the Tory Advisory Group, also points out there are several key differences, too. One of those differences is that the federal government sets the premium. So this isn't GEICO. You can't call and set, you know, 15 minutes, say 15 percent. That's not the way it works. Um, Rates are what rates are, no matter who you purchase that crop insurance policy from. The federal government also has another important role to play. It foots part of the bill. But we'll get to that later. As essential as crop insurance is to many producers, it took a while to get that way. Today, crop insurance is under the jurisdiction of USDA's Risk Management Agency. And in case this ever comes up in the weirdest trivia contest of all time, RMA's first administrator was a guy by the name of Ken Ackerman. Well, the program itself goes back to the 1930s, to the New Deal. Benjamin Franklin talked about it a little bit back, way back in the um, 1700s. But um, in the New Deal, the first version, the first federal version of crop insurance came into existence. The Federal Crop Insurance Corporation was one of several things created during President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's major expansion of government programs. The early iterations were small in almost every form. They didn't cover many commodities. They didn't see a lot of enrollment and they didn't get a lot of funding. But that was almost on purpose. The government had an experiment on its hands, and it didn't want the program to get too big too fast. While the grain crop insurance experiment played out, Congress also passed some competing policy. Free disaster coverage tucked into farm bills passed in the 60s and 70s was protecting farmers from feeling the full brunt of yield losses and competing with crop insurance. 
That competition led Congress to pass the Federal Crop Insurance Act of 1980. The bill opened the program to more commodities and more regions. And Ackerman says it also opened the program up for private sector business. There was a strong feeling that um, the private sector can bring efficiencies to government programs that the government cannot provide itself. Um, and, and, and crop insurance, you know, the experience then and the experience now, um, was, bore that out. And part of what makes crop insurance so effective today and, and, and part of what made it possible to do the reforms of the 1990s um, was the fact that we did we were able to rely on a network of private companies and private agents all over the country. With the advent of private sector investment, use of the program grew. But it didn't quite blow up the way Congress had hoped. In fact, six years after the bill had passed, enrollment had doubled. But it still included only about 20% of eligible acres. The legislation was an improvement in the program, sure, but it still had its limitations. Well, I think it held up, but it wasn't near enough. Obviously, it wasn't lucrative enough for a lot of farmers to participate. It was new, so people were still getting the education about crop insurance out there. That's Mary Kay Thatcher, a farm policy lobbyist currently with Syngenta, who has been working on crop insurance issues since the 1980s. The crop insurance of the 1980s was fine, but it was no comparison to the most commonly used Latin phrase in farm policy, ad hoc. The English translation is for this. When it comes to agriculture, the phrase ad hoc is usually followed by another word, disaster. So when an unusual calamity befalls American agriculture, as Ackerman points out was quite often the case in the 80s and 90s, Congress has been quick to step in. The status quo in the, in the early 1990s was um, um, you had um, crop insurance existing on a, on a relatively small scale. Um, and um, when a disaster would happen, um, because so many farmers weren't covered, um, Congress would step in and as a political action would pass an ad hoc disaster, a disaster bill. And during the late 1980s until 1993, in eight out of eight years, Congress passed ad hoc disaster bills. Remember, ad hoc translates to for this, not for these. Disasters started piling up, ranging from the devastating drought in 1988 to the horrific flooding of 1993. Disaster after disaster, ad hoc after ad hoc. But here's the thing about ad hoc assistance. Much like the disasters it responds to, it's unpredictable. Before founding the lobbying firm Combus Sell & Associates, Tom Sell worked on the House Ag Committee during the era of a lot of the ad hoc assistance Ackerman just described. So needless to say, he got very familiar with how ad hoc bills work. It's not built into policy ahead of time. It means Congress is reacting after the fact to a disaster and trying to, to provide funds and a framework uh, to provide some disaster, disaster assistance. This often takes place on an appropriations measure or some kind of end-of-year package. Also working on the House Ag GOP staff at the time was Bill O'Connor, who now works at Watkinson Miller in Washington. If you gave a guy disaster program in 1988, when there was a terrible disaster, and you gave a disaster program, what are you going to tell a guy in 1990 that had a personal terrible disaster? The answer is you're going to tell him we're coming. We're going to help you. It just got to the point where you couldn't tell people no. Uh, there was precedent for everything. And it was very hard to say, we're not doing it. And so they didn't say, we're not doing it. The political calculus at play is fairly simple. 
when an elected official is visiting with a constituent dealing with a disaster, it's a lot easier to ride in on a white horse as a legislative conquering hero than it is to tell voters that help just isn't coming. As Thatcher says, the concept of ad hoc spending on agricultural disasters was the norm. There was a certain segment of members of Congress at that point in time, probably a pretty decent size of the agricultural community members of Congress, who, you know, they wanted to take that money home for their constituents. If there was, you know, some major disaster that went through, they wanted to be able to go home and say, look, I worked really hard and I got this, etc. That's one of the big reasons why ad hoc assistance kept flowing. It's not like the storms were ever going to stop. And absent some kind of new breed of politician uninterested in re-election or constituent assistance, unbudgeted disaster spending showed no signs of slowing down either. But despite the politics of the ad hoc spending, one thing was hard to overlook about the various bills. They didn't always get the money where it was needed. Ad hoc is extremely inefficient. It's a really slow way to get money out the door to farmers. A lot of times it misses the farmers who need the money. Um, How many times have we seen that out of the USDA um, disaster programs that have rolled out just over the last five years, um, where they've rolled out a disaster program and then there's been a phase two, or there's been a, oh, and this little disaster program as well, because we realize that in creating the, the big disaster package, we've missed this whole universe of other farmers. Um, So creating a one-size-fits-all disaster package is really tough. It's why we have crop insurance policies that cover 120 different commodities. The one-off nature of ad hoc assistance also requires several steps that can delay the delivery of payments. First, the disaster must occur and the damages must be assessed. Then, Congress has to pass legislation to fund a program. Then, USDA must create a program to compensate for losses of a given disaster, implement that program, and, depending on the nature of it, either distribute payments based on available data or conduct a sign-up to enroll affected producers. Kansas farmer Chris Tanner has seen several of these programs over his career. Obviously, a check's not good until you have it, so you try to run your business with the mindset of, you know, probably not going to get one. In many cases, farmers will wait more than a year for ad hoc disaster assistance. And sometimes the program structure means they don't get what they are hoping to receive. Tanner's experience with the emergency relief program is a good case study. Congress appropriated $3.7 billion in December of 2022 to address disasters that hit producers that year. USDA announced the ERP payment structure in September of 2023 and began distributing payments in October. 10 months after the passage of the ad hoc spending legislation and more than a year after the disasters themselves. And for some farmers like Tanner, language in the program misses the mark. That thing's a colossal train wreck. I I had a substantial financial loss due to drought on my farm last year. And it, you know, it, it wouldn't even have, it didn't even cover well, basically anything. It, it was a full-fledged joke. Tanner's lackluster opinion of the 2023 program is only exacerbated by his frustrations with the previous version of ERP USDA rolled out in 2022 to cover disasters that occurred in 2020 and 2021. Payments were based on revenue losses, and Tanner says his stored grain sales put him just over the threshold of receiving a payment. I, I made about an extra 5000 too many dollars, so... I mean, I missed out on a a substantial way to prop a farm up through a a rough year just because I I, I was just, you know, right across the line. 
The program has also come under fire on Capitol Hill. John Hoven is the top Republican on the Senate Ag Appropriations Subcommittee. He and several other senators wrote a letter asking the Government Accountability Office to look into USDA's implementation of the $3.7 billion in funding. We did provide flexibility, but they've gone beyond that now in a way that I think does not comport with the intent of the legislation. For example, to say, okay, you've got a bigger loss and we're going to actually give you less assistance or we're not going to pay your crop insurance premium, that goes against the basic approach of the legislation. GAO is, in fact, conducting that investigation as we speak. Now, from USDA's perspective, Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack told us on a recent episode of AgriPulse Newsmakers that ERP's limitations are because of the dollar figure from Congress. This is a really irritating conversation because the problem is with Congress. Uh, The 2021 package of assistance was roughly $10 billion, which was equal to the losses that we had calculated during those two years. So it was relatively easy to provide full and complete relief to everyone. So in 2022, we advised Congress that the range of uh, damage was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to $12 billion. So one would have expected that that's what Congress would have done as, uh, as they had done in the past. That's not what Congress did. They gave us 27% of that amount, 27%. Uh, and then they expressed surprise uh, that farmers aren't getting what they got the previous year. Well, of course, when you only have 27% of what you had the previous year, you're obviously going to have to make adjustments. Should Congress have appropriated more money? Should USDA have drafted a different program? Should Tanner have received a payment at all? These are the kinds of questions that are often the result of ad hoc assistance. When we come back, we'll discuss two bills Congress passed to bolster crop insurance and put an end to ad hoc assistance. Today's Deep Dive podcast is brought to you by America's crop insurance industry, which is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. Providing individualized protection on more than 540 million acres of farmland, crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. Let's take things back to the early 1990s. Congress decided to act after billions of dollars in ad hoc spending, and the result was the Federal Crop Insurance Reform and Department of Agriculture Reorganization Act of 1994. Tom Zacharias joined the National Crop Insurance Services a few years earlier. Full disclosure, NCIS is the sponsor of this episode. He said at the time, lawmakers wanted to put an end to the ad hoc spending. Basically, the idea was to move the effort and the initiative from massive or major ad hoc disaster assistance to a risk management-based crop insurance system. In other words, uh, you had, you know, the idea you had to execute all that disaster assistance through what I guess at the time would have been ASCS offices, okay, versus can you set up a viable crop insurance system where farmers are actually contributing, uh, you know, to the premium, to the losses uh, over time, you know, in an actuarial system? 
All right, let's pause the chronological exercise for a bit and talk about some of the terms we just heard from Tom. For starters, Tom talked about the fact that farmers contribute part of the premium, which means they don't pay all of it. In fact, they don't pay the majority of it. Instead, the federal government picks up the part of the tab not paid for by the policyholder. The amount of that split has shifted over time, but today's average policy is about a 60-40 split, with the bulk of that difference being paid by the government. That's where the term premium subsidy comes in, the percentage of the premium subsidized by the federal government. While the average policy has a 60-40 premium subsidy, that amount can vary depending on the kind of policy and level of coverage. Unlike other types of insurance, policies cannot cover the full value of the crop, but instead can cover between 50 and 85% of losses in 5% increments. The issue of premium support is one of the basic tenets of the program. It's also one of the most controversial aspects of it too. I mean, why does the federal government need to subsidize crop insurance for a farmer when they don't subsidize the non-farmer's car insurance? or the non-farmers' homeowners' insurance or renters' insurance. For crop insurance supporters like Zacharias and Smith, it's a question they get a lot. And I think there is a difference. I think um, the first being, of course, that crop insurance helps us provide food security, which is national security. Um, I think our food supply um, is as critical as a nation. It's a little bit different in that sense. Um, from car insurance or your renter's insurance. I think the, the other reason that it's, it's really important is that farmers face risk that you and I don't face on our car day in and day out, that we don't face on our home day in and day out. Um, and farmers are sort of at the whim of Mother Nature and don't have very many other tools they can use um, to, to help manage that risk. Well, I think agriculture is fundamental to what we do as a society and as an economy. And these, the agricultural disasters and events that are being insured against, uh, the losses can be extreme and severe. But for many others, some of that premium support just doesn't sit right. My name's Scott Faber, and I'm the Senior Vice President for Government Affairs for the Environmental Working Group. The Environmental Working Group has a bit of a different view on farm policy and crop insurance than many of the nation's farm groups, or basically all of the nation's farm groups. When I talked to Scott Faber in EWG's offices in Washington, he was quick to point out that the group isn't opposed to crop insurance. In fact, EWG supports it. But premium subsidies is where EWG separates from the rest of the farm policy pack. We do think, however, that there ought to be reasonable limits on who can receive premium subsidies. Uh, America's largest farmer, Bill Gates, should not be eligible for crop insurance premium subsidies. I don't think I'm saying anything terribly controversial when I say that. And there should be limits on how much you can receive, not just on who can receive those premium subsidies, but on how much you can receive. Crop insurance and many of the nation's other farm programs have a key difference that Faber is touching on there. Many USDA programs have income eligibility restrictions make a certain amount of money, and you aren't eligible to participate. Specifically, $900,000 in gross income, according to the 2018 Farm Bill. But that's not the case for crop insurance. So, why not? It comes back to the issue of actuarial soundness. What is that? Now keep in mind that there's a difference between total premium and the farmer paid portion of that premium. But again, it means that total premium is going to equal indemnities paid. 
Basically, crop insurance can't pay out more than it takes in, or take in more than it pays out. There is some fine print that goes along with that. For instance, what happens in a year of perfect weather? Premiums would be paid, but no indemnities would go out the door. Or what if the next year, it never rains, and every policy in the country is triggered? So it's not every single year it's going to be actuarial sound. That would require a crystal ball that none of us has. But again, the idea is that over the life of the program, it's going to be actuarial sound. So we try not to get too hung up on individual year numbers um, and individual year loss ratios. We tend to try to look at things you know, in chunks of a decade. But even with the actuarial calculation in mind, Faber and others still think some changes are necessary. We need to come up with a system of premium subsidies and farmer pay that makes sure that it's not the ultimately going to bankrupt the program, especially as we move into a time of more and more extreme weather. Look, there are some folks who are doing extremely well. They're doing so well that they should no longer be receiving as much as they've historically been receiving, especially the folks who are getting more than a million dollars a year farming and more than 10 counties, farming in multiple states, right? They're doing great. They could afford to, to receive a little bit less support from the government. And at some point, you're so successful that you, sh you simply should become ineligible for those subsidies. And I think the vast majority of Americans agree that we have means tests for lots of programs, whether it's how we support hungry people, how we support people who don't have homes, how we support uh, folks who get uh, student loans, right? We have lots of ways that we support, we as, as, as Americans support each other through our tax dollars. At some point, people are so wealthy or so well off because of all their sources of income that they probably shouldn't be receiving any more assistance from the federal government. Sell argues that's going to be tough. They tend to be on the lower side of the loss ratio. They use crop insurance for all the right reasons. Every farmer is going to have a loss some year, but on the spectrum of loss history, many of the larger farmers have a better history. And so if you take that better history out, then your mean or your average, your actuarial basis actually moves in the opposite way. And, and that has to be rated out. So there's a statutory loss ratio in federal crop insurance of, of 1.0, meaning over a multi-year period, the indemnities that are paid out to farmers uh, should equal or be no greater than uh, the amount of premium that is paid into federal crop insurance. So if you take some of the best history out, uh, your rates are going to have to go up. They're going to have to rise uh, to service the smaller book of business uh, that you're trying to service. So again, it goes, just goes to that principle. In insurance, you want as big of a pool of risk as you can possibly get. Uh, and that tends to help bring down uh, the rates for everyone. The issue of the risk pool, actuarial soundness, and premium subsidy support is one of the longest running debates around the crop insurance program. But back to the 1994 legislation. That bill made several changes that still shape how crop insurance operates today. It created catastrophic and prevented planting coverage while boosting premium subsidies. And crop insurance enrollment exploded. Between 1993 and 1995, the year before and after the passage of the 94 reform bill, insured acres grew 163% and program liability more than doubled. But despite their best efforts, Congress could not stop the ad hoc machine from churning. So several years later, legislators got back to work again. Then House Ag Committee Chair Larry Combes brought a bill to the floor that would become the Agriculture Risk Protection Act of 2000. 
Pamba said it was time to stop undercutting crop insurance with disaster spending. Unfortunately, during its 61 years of existence, this critical program has been both underfunded and seriously undermined by ad hoc disaster. This dual policy has fueled a vicious cycle that has not saved taxpayer money but cost them countless billions. By underfunding the crop insurance program, farmer paid premiums have been unaffordable, leading to a nation of uninsured or underinsured farmers at best and uninsured farmers at worst. O'Connor was sitting behind Combest on the House floor when he was making that speech. We had to convince everybody, Budget Committee, the CBO and everybody, that it was okay to create a baseline based on disaster programs. I mean, basically, they said they had repeatedly and firmly said absolutely not. Disaster programs are ad hoc and there's no such thing as a baseline for disaster. But the leadership uh, of the party in 2000 decided that they were going to suggest to CBO, which those suggestions can be rather firm, uh, that it was time to recognize the fact that Congress passed uh, disaster programs every 20 minutes and that the idea of having a baseline for disaster programs was not anathema. Sell says the pitch on Capitol Hill was simple. You know, look, we think we can do better than than what the seven-year baseline would be. Give us a portion of that up front, and we think we can make changes to the federal crop insurance program that will actually incentivize better behavior on farms and save the taxpayers money. In the Senate, the bill was championed by Nebraska Democrat Bob Carey and Kansas Republican Pat Roberts, the only member of Congress to chair both the House and Senate Ag Committees and arguably the biggest crop insurance champion to ever walk the halls of Capitol Hill. Bev Paul was an ag staffer for Kerry at the time. She says the biggest difference the two chambers needed to sort out boiled down to the age-old issue of premium subsidies. We had a philosophical difference between the Senate and the House about the subsidy numbers. And you should, should you be subsidizing more at the higher levels of coverage, as in should the subsidy percentage be more at the higher coverage or the lower coverage? And of course, it seems like, you know, the obvious answer is the higher levels of coverage should get higher levels of subsidy. But when you look at the way the program works, it's not. And in fact, the Senate, we had to recede in that debate for a couple of reasons. First of all, you know, it's uh, less expensive to subsidize the lower levels more. But really, the biggest reason was because, you know, how in farm policy, nobody is ever asked to give anything up. And if you switched the levels so that lower levels of, of coverage got lower levels of subsidy, that means that some of the farmers who were buying the lower levels were going to pay more. And, you know, the House just wouldn't accept that. The 2000 ARPA legislation was transformative for crop insurance. Premium subsidies went up again. The role of the private sector was expanded, giving them the ability to research and develop new forms of insurance through what's called the 508H process. In the years that followed, revenue protection policies emerged, which allow producers to be protected from yield losses caused by natural disasters and revenue losses that occur when the harvest price comes in lower than projected. In 2023, Revenue policies accounted for 69% of the total liability and subsidy in the federal crop insurance program. 
There were also efforts to help smaller, diversified operations through policies initially known as adjusted gross revenue and AGR light. And livestock producers were brought into the fold, but with a liability cap of $20 million. After Congress eliminated that cap in 2018, participation grew exponentially, with liability now topping $26 billion. Smith says that growth has presented new challenges. We're reaching a whole separate group of farmers providing a risk management tool to all of these farmers that, that weren't receiving those risk management tools before. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's a bit of a game changer for the industry too, right? Um, companies have to take on part of that liability. They have to find reinsurance uh, for that liability. And with that dramatic growth, um, there have been some, some challenges and growing pains on that front. All told, federal crop insurance now offers more than 20 forms of risk management based on yield, revenue, area-based losses, rainfall index, whole farm coverage, and more. Protection is offered for more than 120 commodities grown from coast to coast. And the Crop Insurance Coalition has grown right along with it. The sector can count on lobbying support from basically every commodity group, but Thatcher also explains why farm input providers like Syngenta are at the table. Well, obviously, we want our farmers to be profitable because as a company, we're not going to be profitable if they aren't. And we believe that crop insurance is probably the most important safety net program out there, that it works, especially when you think about those major commodities that most of the, the agribusiness companies are very involved in. Um, that's just something that's really critical for farmers to have. Ag input providers, farm equipment manufacturers, the banking sector, just about anyone with a vested interest in agriculture is involved. And the strength of that coalition was flexed in 2015. The White House and congressional leadership reached a budget deal that included a $3 billion cut to the reimbursement rate for crop insurance companies. Smith left her husband's birthday dinner when the call came in at about 10 p.m. that the language was in the deal. By 9 a.m. the next morning, the coalition sprang into action sending message after message to Capitol Hill. We finally got a phone call um, from Ag Committee staff saying, offices have asked that we, we ask you to call off the dogs. <laughs> They've gotten the point. We're going to get it reversed. It's taken care of. Um, no more phone calls, please. Which I don't think, I don't know if Ag has ever you know, raised that much attention or put that many phone calls into Hill offices in that short amount of time before. So, um, you know, again, the coalition as a whole. The cut was restored and the coalition demonstrated its might, sending a clear signal about the unity of agriculture behind crop insurance. This episode of AgriPulse Deep Dive is brought to you by the National Crop Insurance Services. Tune in for the next episode when we explore the deep history of agricultural finance. For AgriPulse Deep Dive, I'm Spencer Chase.